It's January 12th, 2024, and this is the Room Now podcast. Wait, no, this is the Room Now 2023 Rheumatology Year in Review. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, and on this podcast, I'm going to take a look back at all the things that I thought were new and important and worthy of bringing back to your attention. A lot has changed in the last year where you sort of put the pandemic in the rearview mirror and you've gotten back to your comfort zone in practice and operations. Uh, again, I think that there are many things that happened this last year, aside from the way we practice, that are or that do represent advances, game changers, or developments that will affect your practice today and in the future. Here's my top 10 list. It always begins every year, and we do this every year, you know, with what happened at the regulatory agencies, and we'll focus on the United States and the Food and Drug Administration. In 2023, they had a 50% increase in new drug entities that were approved by the FDA. The number was 55 this year. In 2022, it was only 37. Um, and Again, their highest number they've ever done, I think, was 59 back in about five years ago. And so 55 is pretty close to a record, if, if you will. Um, did any of that translate to rheumatology? The only newly approved uh, novel entity entering the marketplace was for psoriasis, and that was uh, bimikizumab, also called Bimzelex. Uh, approved for psoriasis, not yet for PSA. If we're lucky, we'll see that in 2024, end of 2024. But there were a number of new additional indications that were approved. That means a drug is approved for a certain disease, and then on down the line, it gets new indications and new uses that are approved by the FDA. And there were a number of those this year. Um, Secukinumab or Cosentix made it twice, first with the approval of the intravenous formulation of secukinumab that is indicated for use in PSA, um, ankylosing spondylitis, and non-radiographic spondyloarthritis. Also, they had a new indication for uh, severe hydradenitis suppurativa, which I see those patients. I'm sure you do as well. Also on this list, new, ceruleumab uh, uh, kevzara for the use in uh, patients with problematic PMR. Canakinumab, Ilaris for use in gout flares. Abatacef, now being approved for juvenile psoriatic arthritis. Upatacitinib has been approved for severe Crohn's disease. Colchicine was approved for cardiovascular prevention. Uh, and Infliximab got a new indication and actually a new formulation. So this is the same as the biosimilar Inflectra, but now being used subcutaneously for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So this is called Zymphentra. Uh, it is the same drug as is Inflectra, but it is only meant to be used subcutaneously and only approved for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. That is actually approved in Europe uh, as a potential therapy for RA and all the other in indications you have for Infleximab, but that hasn't happened with the uh, U.S. regulatory agency, and there are a number of hurdles to go forward on before they could ever do that. So next on my list is a big breakout year for biosimilars. I just mentioned a few of them. Um, and, and really, I think why this was such a banner year is 
We've had a number of biosomers that have been FDA approved, but going nowhere because of negotiated agreements between the makers of uh, adalimumab and the makers of etanercept, delaying their commercial introduction to the U.S. marketplace. That all ended for adalimumab in 2023 with the new arrival of nine previously approved versions, biosimilar versions of adalimumab. Now we have a glut of biosimilars that we can add to the number of infliximab biosimilars that occur and rituximab biosimilars. Uh, there were also new biosimilars for ustekinumab and the IL-6 inhibitor um, um, uh, tocilizumab this past year. So why is this important? I think it's now opening our eyes. I think that we're now going to see um, a change in the availability and the use um, such that you can expect significant growth. The projections on biosimilar sales in the next five years is going to be up to $129 billion worldwide with estimated savings of as much as $181 billion. Doesn't make sense to me, but why not? You should know by reference in 2022, only about $22 billion in biosimilar sales were um, achieved with about $9 billion in savings. So I'm, we're going to see a rapid rate of growth in the United States on biosimilars. And here are the ones that made the list and the approval this year. Uh, the Ustekinumab biosimilar was called Weslana. Um, and for all the Ustekinumab, the IL-1223 inhibitor indications. Tofidence is the tocilizumab biosimilar. Um, and then there were nine uh, new uh, versions of Humira, biosimilar versions of adalimumab. And their names are Euphlema, Edasio, Ibrolata, Hadlima, Julio, not the television station, Hiramaz, Celtizo, Amjavita, and Yusimri. Look for those at a treatment center near you. Third on my list, I think, is the um, the marquee uh, elevation of PMR, polymyalgia rheumatica. I think with the approval of ceruliumab for use in refractory PMR, there's been considerable buzz, education, a lot of new discussion about steroid sparing, the role of biologics in uh, this common disorder that we really kind of get. We really like this. Um, rooms are into PMR. And I can prove that because we did a campaign in, I think it was September, on poly, no, October of this year, Polymyalgia Rheumatica. That's where I do a lot of publications and videos and podcasts and Tuesday Night Rheumatology, all centered around PMR. Now, this was sponsored by the makers of that, Sanofi. But what you need to know is in the end, we measure the popularity of what we did by an engagement statistic. How many articles were read? How many uh, video views? How many podcast listens? How many Twitter likes? The number was over 50,000. That means you're into PMR, and I think that we need considerable discussion about where this is going to go with rheumatologists. More importantly, where is this going to go with primary care? They're the ones who are making this diagnosis, and they're into this as much as you are. How are you going to partner with, PM, with the PCPs in the future to make sure these patients are diagnosed quickly and treated appropriately. Hopefully this new drug and basically new educational efforts will expand that to the benefit of our patients. Uh, again, um, I think I might've mentioned this last year, but CAR T cell therapy has been all really a big buzz despite a paucity of data. 
You know, Georg Schett and his group introduced this about two years ago with, I think the original report was on five or six patients with refractory lupus who stopped their all their failing biologic therapies and their steroids, got CAR T-cell therapy, and have been in remission ever since. I think that cohort of his has grown to as much as 15, and he's treated a few other disorders, including myositis patients. Uh, and there's a lot of development going on in CAR T-cell therapy. The great news is those patients went into remission. These were horribly, um, you know, damaging autoimmune disease patients who went into remission off therapy after a course of very expensive CAR T-cell therapy. So prolonged remission makes this really, really attractive, and many companies are getting into this. Prior to these reports, there were about six companies or six indications for CAR T-cell therapy, mainly in the field of oncology. And as you know, this year, the FDA came up with a warning about the safety of CAR T-cell therapy, now uh, researching reports of secondary malignancies in patients taking CAR T-cell therapy, but there were people who already had malignancies. This hasn't been reported in our autoimmune or lupus patients. Somewhat unbelievable, but astounding, is that the CAR T-cell therapy was so well tolerated by our patients. If you look at CAR T-cell therapy in cancer, it's not well tolerated. It's nasty. It's got a lot of side effects. But then again, those are really, really sick patients. But then again, so are ours. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes and what kind of market this is going to be. CAR T-cell therapies are going to be developed for lupus, myositis, scleroderma, rheumatoid, MS, and lumbago for all I know. But it's going to be studied quite a bit and you'll see a lot of reports in the future. Um, in 2023, this was a $4 billion market, and it is expected to be greater than $85 billion market in the next 10 years. That, like biosimilar growth, is going to be interesting to watch. What's been more interesting to watch than the growth of artificial intelligence? Really? Are you into it like I am? Most of you are not, and I'm telling you, most of you should be. As you know, the maybe the Banner product for artificial intelligence was ChatGPT, um, the version 3 that was introduced for free for everybody in November of 2022. And within two months, 100 million users and registrants for ChatGPT. That number is currently at 180 million. And in the month of November 2023 alone, there were 1.7 billion website visits to ChatGPT. This is one version of AI and where it's going. It's being developed throughout medicine and throughout business. And it's supposed to make you better and smarter and more informed. AI is going to be used in diagnostics, medical practice, EHRs, medical decision-making, drug development, time and practice management, and medical education. It's going to be hard to escape going forward. If you're AI perturbed or disbeliever, then you're going to be anchored in your analog past and you're going to miss out on a digitally exciting future. I tell you to learn more about it and lean into what is the problem of AI. Yeah, it's got some downside, but let's discuss the hundreds of upsides and then you can give me your three downsides that are preventing you from getting into AI. Along the lines of AI, next on my list is virtual learning. More and more of you clinicians, learners, 
are, instead of going to the national and regional conferences, are opting to attend virtually. Certainly, this was the rule and something we had to adapt to during the pandemic in 20 and 21. But my surveys show that as much as 40% of you are virtually inclined and think that even though there are some downsides to virtual, meaning you don't get to see your, your colleagues, you don't get to talk to the speakers, you know, that, um, and just being at the meeting and away from, uh, work, um, that the educational value is enough for you to engage it, especially since you can save time and money by doing virtual learning. Uh, I would encourage you to do this. And I think the real question going forward come is answered by the clash. <laughs> That's the question. Are you going to go to the meeting or are you going to go virtual in the future? Room Now is committed to doing hybrid stuff and virtual education, so we'll always be in the game. We're looking for your suggestions. Next on my list is the diabetes drugs. If you haven't noticed, the GLP-1 agonists and the SGLT-2 inhibitors have revolutionized um, diabetes therapy and weight loss. Yeah, that's true, right? But more importantly, these have become mainstay agents in patients with chronic renal disease and chronic heart failure and other cardiac problems. And not surprisingly, the research has shown that these drugs, when used in our patients, lead to better big-time outcomes, and that being mortality statistics. So cohort studies of patients with autoimmune, patient, autoimmune disease who are also on one of these drugs and looks at their outcomes they always do better than those that who are not. And because, again, those autoimmune patients are taking these drugs because they also have coexistent diabetes. And they compare it to other autoimmune patients who have diabetes who are taking the uh, dipeptidyl peptidase 4 drugs and show that, again, the GLP-1 and the SGLT-2s do so much better. This has been seen in lupus, osteoarthritis, psoriasis, um, and also in gout where there's less flares and lower uric acid levels for some reason. More research is going to happen. This is a pretty hot area and not all about weight loss. My eighth item on my list is the growth of autoimmune disease. Some say this is epidemic. Lancet published a paper this year saying that the general population prevalence of autoimmune disease is nearly 10% based on a large UK population-based study. Let's think about that. One in 10. Back in 1997, it was estimated to be one in 31. In 2005, it was estimated to be 23.5 million in the United States or one in 12 women or one in 10 men. It's going up. So again, their number, and they counted 19 different autoimmune diseases. That includes type 1 diabetes and thyroid disease as well. And MS, not just all your disease, but Basically, it was 10.2%, 13% of women and 7.4% of men. This is getting close to being epidemic, and, and it's reflected in how much we are spending on autoimmune disease societally. Back in 2011, it was estimated we were spending 50 to $70 million a year, and now the estimates are presumed to be as high as $174 billion a year. Who is going to manage this epidemic of autoimmune disease since you can't clone yourself and triple or quadruple your work output? 
You're the person who knows autoimmune disease. You need to take a bigger role in guiding this and developing plans for meeting the public demands for musculoskeletal care and autoimmune disease. Number nine on my list is outcomes in women. I'm bothered by this. I don't know if you've seen the data, but it's pretty overwhelming. Um, number one, women get these disorders that we treat more than men, except for a few. But for the most part, women get it more than men. Even worse, women respond less than men with these disorders when it comes to the use of DMARDs and biologics. And that's kind of uniform, with very few exceptions. And as such, women have worse outcomes. Yet, you and I, and I'm thinking about me, I don't really think in these terms when I'm seeing a man or a woman who has ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, whatever. I kind of think, well, they're the same and they have the same disease and my, and my treatment, you know, arsenal is going to be the same. I think that we need more research on this and a particular focus on women and why they do worse. And by the way, it's not because they have, it's all secondary fibromyalgia. It's not that. There are many other factors that are in play here that, again, if we're to be good at managing all of our patients, regardless of gender, we're going to have to pay attention to this going forward. So look at your patients, especially the data seems overwhelming in, in SPA and PSA. Look at those patients and say, what am I going to do to be more aggressive uh, and to guarantee the success of these patients as I treat them? And my last uh, bit is on difficult to treat disease. You know, you've probably heard me lecture in the past and seen some of my stuff on D2TRA in 2021. My book and colleagues put out the ULAR guide, a definition on uh, difficult to treat RA. And that was very important because since they did that in 2021, there have been a number of reports in the literature about either quantifying the number of people who have difficult to treat RA, roughly about 10% in many studies, um, but also the approaches. What happens if we do A versus B versus C, right? And you want to know, as I want to know, should I be treating fibromyalgia there or should I be adding on another biologic? And that's the kind of research we're, we're needing to do. But now here in 2023 and it started actually last year, we're seeing this definition and this concept being extended to other conditions. And that would include lupus and the spondoarthropathies and psoriatic arthritis. So you'll see D2T PSA, D2T SPA, D2T lupus. And this is more than just the treat to target approach, which some of you practice and some of you don't. But I think you do, everyone wants to pay attention to a focus on those patients who are the ones we stay awake at night worrying about because we know we're just not hitting on the right solution for them. Even though you've done your best efforts, use your best therapy, um, done your best assessments that they're still not doing well. And the question is, what's the approach? We need this kind, these kind of definitions to tell us, to develop more research that will tell us in the future about what we're going to do right and what we're going to do wrong. I want to end this podcast with a, uh, a mention of the many rheumatologists who passed away in 2023. These are our peers and our friends. Um, I think that they have done the painstakingly hard work of caring for rheumatology, rheumatology patients who are, as you know, the most complex of medical disorders that most of our colleagues don't really get. But they do it because they love it and they do it with great zeal and, and great um, care. 
uh, and we lost them, many of them, and I'll just mention a few of them here. I would re- encourage you to go look at the In Memoriam piece that I published this past week. We lost uh, Henry Austin from Pinehurst, North Carolina, the great Richard Brasington from WashU in St. Louis. Um, tragic loss. Love Richard. He was a great colleague and friend. Olivia Gomez from Whittier, California. Joseph Flood, past ACR president from Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. A leader and, boy, what a great man. Fellow Texan, Ed Fudman in Austin, Texas. Great teacher from California, Rodanthe Kittredu, um from Altadena, California, passed away this year. John Plunkett Letty from the University of Rochester. Gerald Leventhal from Scarsdale, New York. The wonderfully talented, young, Bright spot in rheumatology, Philip Robinson left this world all too, all too early. Um, Philip from the University of Queensland in Australia will be sorely missed. The legendary Naomi Rothfield from the University of Connecticut. Eric Sasso, great colleague, friend, researcher, um, and inquisitive mind from La Jolla, California. Christopher Stevens from Nashville, Tennessee, and George Thompson from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Great colleagues, great friends, invoke their names and memories frequently because they are the foundation upon which we proudly stand as rheumatologists. I'll end with a final mention. Room Now Live is coming up in the 24th and 27th and 28th of January, a few, two weeks away. We look forward to seeing you online or on site in Dallas, Texas. Have a great day.